Christ, the sure and steady anchor. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. We'll begin reading in a moment in verse 13 as we come to that particular section in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Pastor Todd last night uh, texted me sometime in the evening after all his plans had gotten messed up and not leaving and said, uh, did I still want to preach this morning? And I texted him back with an emoji with the big eyes, and I said, what do you think? And then I said, but I will submit to whatever my pastor wishes. And uh, so he let me do this. That's good. It's, uh, we do need to be praying for Israel and the whole Middle East at this time as a lot of things taking place there. The Apostle uh, Matthew writes in this gospel about a particular time in the ministry of Jesus, a time that really is sort of a pivotal point, if you will, as we come to this particular passage in Matthew's gospel. Up until this point, Jesus has been teaching and doing miracles and going all through the countryside, and some have believed and some have heard, and a lot have looked at him and not known exactly who he was or what he was all about, but, but he's continued his ministry and continued his work faithfully right up to this point. And at this point, you're going to see kind of a change in direction. As a matter of fact, next week when Pastor Todd preaches the next section, it's going to talk about how from that point on, he started looking toward Jerusalem. And by that meaning, looking toward Calvary. And so we think about this particular event as a really significant event in the life and the ministry of Jesus. I've titled the sermon, The Great Confession, because that's what it is. And we as a church at Grace Baptist Church are a confessional church. We confess truths about who Christ is, and we profess truths about what the Christian gospel is, and it's very important that we remember those, and we cling to those, and and the whole foundation of it is really found in this passage today that we're looking at. Follow along, if you will, while I read these verses, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. When we come to verse 13, that is a verse that if you're not very careful, it's very easy just to kind of 
pass on over it. And then he came into the region of Caesarea, or the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he began to address his disciples. For many, many years, I preached this passage and other passages and thought about Caesarea Philippi. Okay, he left the, uh, Ces- he left the area of Capernaum and the area where he was doing most of his ministry at that time. And they went outside a little ways, and they went into Caesarea Philippi, and, and there he talked to his disciples about who he was. It wasn't until 2016 when I went to Israel and and took the the Holy Land tour, and we one day went up to Caesarea Philippi, and I found out that Caesarea Philippi on a bus ride was about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes away. As a matter of fact, I want to show you a map here. This is a Google map of today, so it's not... I couldn't figure out how to get the times off, so ignore the times. But most of his ministry was taking place there in the Capernaum area. And then they went up to Caesarea Philippi, which is where that red dot is at the top. It's about 25 to 30 miles as we would look at it. And and so as they went, they didn't just say, okay, let's go outside of the city of Capernaum or let's just go a little bit away from the Sea of Galilee. But rather from the Sea of Galilee, they went about 25 to 30 miles north. and, And they went to Caesarea Philippi. I would guess, if he was thinking about it, he went there for a specific reason. It wasn't just because, okay, let's get as far away from where we've been doing ministry as we can, and let me have a talk with you. But he went to Caesarea Philippi, because Caesarea Philippi in that day was a very significant place in the whole region. It was, a, it was a city that had been built by Philip the Tetrarch, who, who named it in, in honor of, of Augustus Caesar, uh, in order to honor Caesar, and then put his name on it also, and became Caesarea Philippi. But it was a city of idols. It was a city of false gods. It was a city that had no use for the true and the living God, had no recognition of Jehovah, Yahweh God at all. As a matter of fact, it was a very pagan, very Gentile city that Jesus took his disciples to. Now, when I saw it in 2016, it was in ruins. That It had been torn down, things had been destroyed, they had signs everywhere pointing to it. But there is an artist's depiction of what it looked like in the day of Jesus when he would have gone there. Uh, on, the, on the left there, you see the temple of Augustus Caesar that go, drew the name of the city, Augustus, uh, uh, Caesarea rather, uh, Augustus Caesar. Uh, the, there's the cave right behind the temple, which was a cave where a spring flowed out of. And it was kind of referred to sometimes as a spring of living water that flowed out of the, out of the cave and flowed into and through the temple. Uh, between that and the other temple to Zeus, you had the, count of the court of Pan. Pan was an interesting pagan god. Pan was half man and half goat. Uh, from the waist down, he was, had the body of a goat. From the waist up, he had the body of a man until you got to the top of his head. Then he had horns like a goat would have. And so you had there the, the court of Pan, one of the biggest idols that was worshipped in that place in that day, and that was there. Then you had the temple of Zeus. Then you had the upper tomb temple and the lower tomb temple, which is where the goats were sacrificed and the bones were buried as they worshipped around these goats that were, were representative of Pan, their false deity. So you had all these things going on in that particular place. A lot of idols being worshipped, a lot of false gods being worshipped, and now Jesus comes along and he brings his disciples to that place and he looks at them and he starts this conversation. I don't know about you, but it gives me a little bit, a little deeper understanding of what Jesus is saying to those disciples, knowing where he took them 
and knowing why he took them there. That it was a significant place to ask the questions that he was about to ask. So it says, now he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Don't miss that. Don't pass over that when you read that in the future. Realize this is a place where Baal was worshipped at one time. This is a place where Jeroboam the king built a false uh, 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 an idol out of, of a golden calf and caused the downfall of the kingdom and just all sorts of things happened in this one area. Before Caesarea Philippi, it was Panius, named after the false god Pan. So, so think about that when we start thinking about how this is a place where there was a great gathering of false worship and pl- a place of worshiping numerous false gods. Literally, if you, if, can you put that back up there, Rosemary, just one second? The cave that uh, is behind the entrance, uh, behind the temple, the cave entrance, was literally known and called in that day the gate of Hades, the gate to the underworld, the gate to where people would go when they died and they would just enter into there and go into to Hades for whatever time their God allowed them to be there as they saw that. They also used that as a place of sacrifice of children to, to pan on many occasions. So it was, a, it was an evil and a horrible place for Jesus to take his disciples and to look at them as they get there and looking around at all these false gods, all these false idols, and saying, tell me this, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now you recognize immediately as he asked that question that he's giving them the answer, isn't he? He's really telling them who he is. Son of man was his favorite uh, designation for himself, taken right out of Daniel, the son of man, sitting on the clouds, high and exalted and lifted up. Th- this is what he's saying. But he says, tell me this, who the people say that the son of man is? I-, I think he's saying, tell me something. You've been around on the streets. You've been around the people. What's the scuttlebutt? What are people saying about me? Who are they saying that I am? I suppose in one sense he was looking for what we might call today a modern-day opinion poll. We know a lot about opinion polls. We see them every day. Somebody's giving you an opinion poll about something. Somebody's telling you that so many people believe this and so many people believe this, and, and we, we're just bombarded with them. Well, they didn't have Gallup or Barna or any of those back in Jesus' day, but he simply said to them, who do people say that I am? They immediately answered him. They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Now, that seems kind of strange because John the Baptist had been, been martyred. He had been killed not long ago by Herod uh, because of his pointing out Herod's sin. And, and, Herod, uh, and we know that, that he was dead. But if you remember back in chapter 14, the very first verse of chapter 14, that's even who Herod thought Jesus might be. He said there, he said, he's doing all these miracles. He's doing all these great things. The people are following him. This must be John the Baptist brought back from the dead. So I don't think it's uh, out of line at all that the people say, well, he must be John the Baptist. He's preaching with authority. He's preaching truth. He must be John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus looked at him and said, so that's what the people are saying. That was not just a problem in Jesus's day. That's a question that is being asked and being answered every day in the United States of America and in Great Britain and in every part of the world. Who is Jesus? It's amazing if you read modern day opinion polls, 
you'll find that many people say, oh, well, he was an important religious figure. Even people that aren't Christians will many times say, well, he, he, he did exist, he was there, and, and, and you know, the, he's important to the world history, and we need to honor him with some importance, but we don't believe he's the son of God. Matter of fact, a survey taken in London, in England, just a couple of years ago, found out that only 20% of the people in the UK believed that Jesus was, in fact, divine, was God. 20%. 80% gave an answer that was other than he is God. Some that he was a great prophet, some that he was a great teacher. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul, my professor, one time say in a class when we were talking about this particular passage, and, and R.C. said, well, if he was just a prophet, he was a false prophet. He was not a good prophet because he said, I and the Father are one. He said, I have come down from heaven to show you the Father and to show you the Father's glory. And if he is a prophet saying that sort of thing and is just a prophet, then he is a false prophet, not to be worshipped and not to be followed at all. So he looked at him and he said, well, if that's what people are saying, and, and in America, 53% say that he was just a great teacher, according to the Lifeway and Ligonier poll that was taken just last year, 53% said, well, he, he's something good, something important, but he's really not God. He's not divine. He's not God incarnate, God in the flesh. He's just not that. Many others say many different things. Matter of fact, in that same poll, many said, well, Jesus was the first and greatest created person that God created, which shows a total lack of understanding who Christ is, and, and that was taken with a lot of Christians involved in it. A lot of Christians, a lot of people sitting in church pews said, oh, he was the first and the greatest person ever created by God. But that uh, misunderstands the whole fact that he is not created. He is and always has been. He is part of the Godhead from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. And apart from Him was not anything created that was created. John chapter 1. So we have a, a confusion not only in Jesus' day, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, whatever. We also have a confusion in our own day. And so then he looked at his disciples, and he looked at those, and he said, well, if that's all that the scuttlebutt is, if that's what everybody's saying, well, who do you say that I am? You who have been with me for three years almost, you who have, have been with me as I've taught, as I've done miracles, we've eaten together, we've, we've camped together, we've been together all this time, who do you say that I am? And who else but Peter? Who else but Peter would speak up immediately and he wouldn't equivocate and he wouldn't, he wouldn't stutter, he wouldn't stammer at all. He said, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, that's quite a statement for Peter. You've got to remember that just in the next section, Jesus is going to say to Peter, he's going to say, get thee behind me, Satan, because he's going to say something incredibly stupid. Or you've got to think about Peter who, as Jesus is being tried, 
and he stands outside where the trial is going on, and, and he's asked, you were with him, weren't you? And he said, no, I don't know the man. I, I'm just here warming myself. And, and another one said, no, 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 you're, you're a Galilean. You were with him. I don't know the man. Three times he denied him. Doesn't sound like the kind of person who would say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're following you because of who you are, because of the reality of who you are. That's so very important. I I love that response. That question is still being asked. It's still being asked to you today. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus as you think about him this morning? Now, I would dare say the majority of us in this room this morning would immediately say, oh, He's the Christ. We, we know he's the Messiah. We know he's the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. But I want you to think about what that might mean if you really, truly, fully believe that. I want you to think what it might mean if that is really at the very core of your being, at the core of your beliefs. What does it mean in your life that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. How does that affect you on every single day? Well, I'll tell you what. You won't say that because you're smart. You won't say that because you just kind of reasoned it out and thought it out and figured it out on your own because neither did Peter. Jesus looks at Peter and, and says, you know, Peter, you passed this test. <laughs> you got this one right. He says, Peter... Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus made it very clear to Peter and to those other apostles that were around, and perhaps anyone who was in the court of Pan or around that area and thinking about and listening in on this conversation, he made it very clear to them where this knowledge came from. It came from the Father. Peter, you didn't figure this out. Peter, I'm not going to give you an A plus and say you're a good student because you were able to reason it. No, Peter, my Father has revealed this to you. It hadn't been your flesh. It hadn't been blood. It hadn't been your mind. It hadn't been your own reasoning. It is my Father who is in heaven. That's where this knowledge came from. Jonathan Edwards, the great... uh, preacher on this continent back before we were a nation even. You probably know Jonathan Edwards by one, one sermon only. If you ask most people, what did Jonathan Edwards preach? He, they'll say, well, he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. You may have even had that in high school literature. I did. Of course, I was a long time ago. But, but you know, in, in high school, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And, and you're, we hear about how he was such a mean and horrible preacher and he you know he scared people he talked about a like a spider being held over the fire just barely hanging on by its by its web just barely able to stay out of the fire and and he's trying to scare people into the kingdom well there was a sermon he preached long before he preached that one that really kind of catapulted him into his fame if you will and he preached a sermon on this very text Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he entitled that sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light. A Divine and Supernatural Light. And he went on to show in that sermon that if we're going to see Christ as he is, 
If we're going to see Christ in all his fullness and all his glory, it won't be because we're so smart. It won't require a PhD. It won't even require a master's. It will require, require the Holy Spirit of God operating upon our life and opening our eyes to see who Christ is and opening our heart to believe, just like he did with Lydia there on the riverside with the Apostle Paul. Luke says, God opened her eyes and opened her heart, and she believed. That's the work of God's Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. It's the only way you'll know who he is. Oh, you may know intellectually that he was a man who lived in Galilee 2,000 years ago. You may know some facts about him. But to know him, to know him as Paul said he wants to know him in in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him intimately and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed even to his death. To know him that way takes more than your intellect or even your heart. It takes the Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, operating upon your life and giving you what Jonathan Edwards called a divine and supernatural light. I encourage you, go look that sermon up. You can get it on the internet. Get anything on the internet, can't you? But this is a good thing you can get on the internet. Go get it and look it up and read that, that sermon. It is phenomenal. So he says, Peter, you've given the right answer. Peter, I want you to know where the answer came from. Because that's important that you don't get puffy, all puffed up and, and, and you know, gloat about you getting it right and all the others keeping their mouths shut. It wasn't you. And then he goes into the controversial part of this passage. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, not flesh and blood. And then he gets into verse 18. And he said, and I tell you this, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, and I would say that's not the best translation. It ought to be Hades there. Hell, when we think of hell, we usually think of the, the, the word Gehana, which is the burning place, and, and that's more the, the hell. Hades is really the realm of the dead. It's, it's where you enter in from this life to the other life, and whether you're going to heaven or going the other way, going to heaven or going to hell. Why did I say the other way? Uh, you, know, it, you enter through death. You enter through Hades into that realm. And so really, as, as you think about it, with this being how, called the, the, the gates of Hades in Jesus' own day, and they're there when he's saying it, again, it kind of takes on a little bit more meaning. But he says, Peter, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, the, the question is, and somewhat controversial question at times is, What's this rock? Upon this rock, I will build my church. Now he says, Peter, you are Peter, Petros. You are a a little stone. You are a little pebble. But I'm going to build my church on a rock. There's different words used in those two things as you look at it. And, and, And it's important to recognize that because initially, if you just read that without thinking about it, you're liable to say, along with one of the great, uh, I think eras of all of Christendom, you're, you're liable to say, well, this is Peter. Peter's the rock. He's the Petros. He, he's, he's now called the rock. And so Jesus said, Peter, you're the rock. I'm going to build my church firmly upon you. I'm going to build a church that people are going to live in and be a part of, and you're the foundation of it. I'm going to build it right upon you. That's been the Roman Catholic view, that Peter was the first pope. 
that here at Caesarea Philippi, among all the false gods, Peter, Jesus said to Peter, you're now ordained and set apart as the first pope. Well, the pope is supposed to be infallible. The rock is supposed to be infallible. As I mentioned earlier, I think later on when Jesus has to say, get thee behind me, Satan, and talking to Peter. And when Jesus says to him, and has to forgive him after his denials outside of his trial, I think it's very clear that he is not the rock upon which this is built. In, in 1622, you'll see that later, you'll see his denial. In Galatians 2.11, Paul had to correct Peter. Paul had to call him and confront him because of his lack of showing the gospel love to the Gentiles. And so I think to say it's Peter is kind of a, kind of a misuse of what this text is actually saying. I think Peter himself kind of gives us some understanding of how he understood these words. If, if you look in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8, uh, I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, or you can. But I'm going to move rather quickly. But 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8, Peter writes this, As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, little rocks, little stones, and you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense." There, it's clear that Peter's not saying, hey, I'm writing this letter as the rock that you're to build your faith upon and build your life upon. I'm writing to you to tell you, put your faith, put your trust in the real rock of our salvation, in the real stone of our salvation, who is Jesus Christ. He also said in, in Acts, as he was preaching there before the council, not preaching but defending himself before the council, when they accused him of, of healing and, and, and doing things that were, and proclaiming this Jesus, the resurrection from the dead, he said this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, that is, healing him, by what means has this man be healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this, uh, all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you healed or well. And then he said this, this Jesus is the stone that you rejected the builders, you are the builders, supposed to embrace him, but you rejected him, and he has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be 
saved. Peter saw it very clearly that Jesus was not saying, oh, you are the, you're the rock, Peter. I'm depending on you to be able to build my church. Peter was a part of that. On the day of Pentecost, he preached to the Gentiles, and, and 3,000 were saved on that day. He was a part of the gathering of the church, but he was not the rock on which the church is built. Jesus says three things here about that foundation. He says, first of all, I want you to understand, I will build my church upon this rock, which I believe is, is not Peter himself, but Peter's confession that Jesus is the rock, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. It's that confession that if Grace Baptist is going to be what God has called us to be, it will be the confession that we make every day. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we stand forth to proclaim that every day in every way that we possibly can. And he says, on that confession, upon that truth, literally upon himself, I will build my church. You know, we've made a lot of mistakes through the years. And I've probably been guilty of, the, of a majority of them. But somehow we've got in our mind that the church is some kind of an organization some kind of an institution primarily. And, and the real thing is we, we call pastors and elders and we say to them, now build our church. Bring in the people. Let's see it happen. And so I remember one time in my ministry in the late 1990s, I got so caught up in the fact that, man, if this is, if this is going to, it had been growing like, wildfire for about eight years but I got to thinking we've kind of plateaued man I got to do something we got to do something here and, and that became pride in my life and it became a sin in my life and and I had to come to a point of repenting of that sin because I thought hey it's it's up to me to build the church folks it's not up to me it's not up to Todd it's not up to Michael or or Scott or or, or Matt or Ricky or any of the pastors or, or Chad as a new elder it's not up to them to build the church Jesus says I will build my church. Not going to build it on your clever ideas. You're not going to build it on your programs. You're not going to build it by giving over to entertainment or by compromising the truth of the Word of God in order to say, well, if we'll just compromise in this area, more people will come in and we can minister to them. But if you're not ministering to them the truth, you're not ministering to them, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you're not doing any ministry to them. You're not helping them one iota. She said, I'll build my church. I remember in 1986 being in, in Sun Valley, California at a shepherd's conference back with John MacArthur. This was back before it became... 6,000 people. They only allowed 200 pastors to come. And I remember we were sitting around one day and he was, he was talking about this and he said, guys, don't try to be a chef. We just had a great meal and I thought, well, it's kind of a silly thing to say. I'm not going to be a chef. He said, don't try to make the message. Don't try to cook up the message. Don't try to come up with something new that will appeal to the, and tickle the fancy of people to bring them in. You're not to be a chef. You're just to be a waiter. 
Jesus Christ is the chef. He's prepared the meal. He's prepared the message. And all you can do and all you're called to do is just deliver that in faithfulness before the living God. Don't be a chef. Be a waiter. Be a servant. And take the truth to those who are around. I remember 1970-something, Neil Postman wrote the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he has a chapter in there entitled, Shuffle On Off to Bethlehem. And that's about amusing ourselves to death in religion. And he's so right. We in the American church have given ourselves over more to entertainment and to, as, as Jesus said, tickling of ears than we have to really proclaiming the truth in the average church in America. May God never see that at grace, and I'm, con- I'm convinced he never will. So I will build my church. Here's our, here's our role in building the church. It's, it's really quite simple. Our role is simply just to obey and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not to come up with something fancy and something new. It's just to obey and submit. On this declaration of the deity of Christ, Jesus says, I will build my church, and and it will be, he says, undefeatable. And the gates of, if ESV says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And as the, uh, I think the, the original text says, the gate, gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I, I think what he's saying simply is this. Death cannot destroy what Christ is doing. Now there's a twofold looking at that. Not too long from now, as Jesus moves toward Jerusalem, and in that moving firmly toward Calvary, there's going to come a death. And he's going to hang on that cross, and he's going to die. Not appear to be dead, but literally die on that cross. And and the forces of Hades, the forces of hell, are going to look at at that man hanging on a cross and say, oh, so that was God's son. Well, he's been defeated. We got him. We've destroyed him. We stopped whatever he wanted to do on this earth. I mean, I've got a feeling Satan and all his minions were gloating over that death. But death will not overpower it. Death will not overcome it. Because three days later, that one who hung on the, on the cross came forth from the grave alive and alive forevermore. And through the years, many have died. Just this past week was the anniversary of the, of the martyrdom of William Tyndall, who was working so hard to translate the, the Bible into the English language so you and I could read it. And they strangled him, and then they burned him at the stake for the sin of translating God's Word. But because of that, God's Word went out even more. Death doesn't defeat the church that Christ is building. Death enhances it. I think it was Luther that said that that the growth of the church is, is watered by the blood of the martyrs. And that's so true. As Satan and his, the enemy wants to destroy and wants to kill, the more he does that, the more the church is strengthened and the more the church grows. 
We will be undefeatable. And then the third thing he says, it's kind of an interesting statement. On this, I will, on this confession, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall, ha- shall be loosed in heaven. Really, uh, that's, that's kind of a, that's a hard verse to translate, to be honest with you. And, and it, it's really in a tense that could better read, I think. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loosed on earth shall, will have been loosed in heaven. In other words, our activities of, of, of these keys, whatever they are, whether Peter's using them, whether we're using them, the idea of these keys is that it's carrying out the purpose of God from all eternity. It's carrying out the purpose of God to build his kingdom and his people and his church upon the earth. I, didn't think, I don't think he was saying to Peter, now Peter, as the first pope, here's the keys, Only you can let people in or let people out. Only you and your successors will have the authority to say, you're saved and you're not saved, or you're bound and you're not bound. I don't think that's why he was saying it all. I think he was saying, Peter, I'm building my church and I'm giving you and my disciples and all that will follow after you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Listen, on the day of Pentecost, Peter used those keys. Preached maybe the greatest sermon that's ever been preached outside of Jesus' own sermons when he said, listen, this man Jesus, who, whom you put to death by the foreordained purpose of God, whom you put to death by the hands of evil men, this same Jesus has risen from the dead and is alive. And I'm calling you to repentance and calling you to believe in this one man Jesus. You see, I think the keys are the gospel. I think the keys are the gospel message that you and I have a part of even in this day. Peter used them. Paul used them. Matthew used them. All the apostles used them as they went out and shared the gospel and spread it all across the land. And people came to believe in Christ. And when they believed in Christ, that which had been loosed in heaven was loosed on earth. Loose from the bondage of sin. And folks, we have the keys to the kingdom. They're in our hands. It's the gospel message. And, and, and it's an amazing message that, that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ is coming again. I love that hymn we sometimes sing. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is the new creation that he has founded upon his word. What a great truth. I I, I love that Pastor Matt started the service this morning by reading Isaiah chapter 6. I honestly, for a minute, got confused because I preached on that text last Sunday down in Monticello and I thought, oh my goodness, is that what I'm supposed to be preaching on today? And then it didn't hit me, it wasn't. But he read just the part of the vision in the temple where Isaiah fell before God and said, I'm a man of unclean lips, live among people of unclean lips. I am, I am undone. 
I'm undone because my eyes have seen the glory of God. And I have sinned. And all the people around me have sinned. And then the angel, the seraphim, flew from the altar, which is the place of sacrifice, and touched Isaiah's uh, lips with with the coal from the altar. And he said, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. It's the same thing that happens at Calvary. God, by, in, a, in an imagery sort of way, takes the fire of Calvary and touches our lips and touches our hearts and says, your guilt is taken away and you are forgiven of all your sin. But he didn't read those next verses. Because after that forgiveness had taken place, Isaiah said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, from that position of laying flat on his face before God, I don't think he jumped up and said, Oh, oh, me, let me go, let me go. I don't think he did that at all. I think from just his prostrate position before God, he looked up and said, humbly, because he had been forgiven, because he had been cleansed, hear my Lord, send me. If you read the rest of that chapter, God says, go. And he says, by the way, nobody's going to listen to you. You're going to speak to them, and their ears are going to hear with their, the words, but it's not going to compute. They're not going to hear. They're not going to repent. You're going to preach all across the country, and nobody's going to believe. They're not going to listen to you. Now, you and I would have probably said to God, well, God, that's a raw deal. I said I would go for you. I said I would preach, but I want to see some mass conversions. I want to see, some, I want to see revival come. I don't want to go and, 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 and preach and not have any results. That'd be our attitude today, wouldn't it? But our attitude is to obey and submit. Our calling is to obey and to submit. To take that gospel message that has been entrusted to you and me, not just to the pastors of this church and the elders of this church. No, it's been entrusted to every single believer that's ever put their faith and their trust in God, in Jesus Christ. It's entrusted to every believer who has said in their heart by the work of the Holy Spirit, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now he says, take those keys and place in your hands the gospel message and go unlock some doors. Say, well, are they going to believe when I go? Maybe, maybe not. But that's not your worry. That's his responsibility not yours. You know, I love this passage because I I see in it just the glory of what Christ is doing even in a world in which we live that looks so pagan, so much like Caesarea Philippi, so much ungodliness, And Jesus says, well, who are people saying I am? And you say, well, at the coffee shop, they say you're a great teacher. At the the mall, they say, well, you're you're certainly a good prophet. And and on and on and on, the, the ludicrousness 
of our culture tries to look at Jesus being anything and anyone except who he is. I love C.S. Lewis's statement. said, he is either a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord. He really doesn't leave us any other option. It's one of those three things. You can either say, well, he's a liar. He said he was the son of God, but he really wasn't. So then he's not a good teacher, that's for sure. And he's not a good prophet. Or he's a prophet. He came to tell us about God and give us some truths and, and some real platitudes and teachings. But, but he's not really God. But he said he was God. And so if he's not and he's a prophet, he's a false prophet. Or he is who Peter said he was. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, God incarnate. And as Peter said before that, that group in Acts, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What are you doing with the keys? What are you doing with the gospel? Are you saying, oh, I believe it, and I just kind of hold it tight and hold it close? Are you taking it to those who need to hear it, even though they may not listen, and sharing that great truth with them? Are you willing to do all that Jesus asks? Obey and submit. Pray with me, would you? And Father, we're here this morning to confess that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're here this morning to confess that all things were made by you, and apart from you was not anything made that was made, because you were there in the beginning with God, and you are God. We're here to confess, Lord, that you have called us, you have commissioned us, and you have told us to go, and wherever we go, to teach all that you have taught us. Lord God in heaven, break our hearts first of our own disobedience and our own sin and break our hearts for the nations. Thank you, Father. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.